famine. In fact, in Genesis chapter 42, verse 1, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? It's one more reason to go, isn't it? Dad lights a fire. We might ask our friend, who went on this trip? Who visited Egypt? In verse 3, the ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Now, Joseph had 11 brothers. Do the math. This is simple math. How many remain? Verse 4. Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Does Jacob know of the role the brothers played in the loss of his son, Joseph? Is Benjamin now the new favorite son? Ten brothers will arrive in Egypt to buy grain. Continuing the discussion with our friend, we might ask of them, how were the accommodations? If you ask the brothers of Joseph, they would tell you it's cold in the desert. They experienced a very icy reception. They appeared before Joseph. In verse 6, by the way, there's a fulfillment of Joseph's prediction. Remember we said how well he is, how good he is at interpreting dreams? He dreamt that one day his brothers would bow down to him. This was like 20 years ago at age 17, and they hated him for it. In verse 6, the brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And in verse 7, these brothers, they do not recognize Joseph. They don't recognize their brother. Joseph notices them, however. The brothers probably at this point believed Joseph was dead. Remember, they sold him to traitors who took him off. He was dressed like an Egyptian. His head was probably shaved. He spoke Egyptian through an interpreter. They had no idea it was Joseph. And Joseph spoke harshly to them. Where have you come from? You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Verse 17, he put them all together in prison for three days. You know, we all love to save on lodging when we travel, but this is crazy. We might ask our friend, what did you do on your trip? How did you get home? Well, Joseph lets these brothers out. And he permits them to return home, to return to Canaan, but they must leave a brother behind. For all the sideways stuff that happens on this trip, nothing could contend with what's happening in the hearts of his brothers. It's been 20 years since they sold Joseph to slavery, and their conscience is wreaking havoc. Verse 21, then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. 
Joseph understood this conversation. He overheard it. Remember, Joseph recognized him, and he knew Hebrew. He knew what they were talking about. In fact, in our account this morning, he was so moved by this that he wept. But Joseph also wants to put the fear of God in these brothers. Finally, we might ask our world-traveling friend, what did you bring back? We ask people that from time to time. I think we want to know if they got us anything. These guys would answer, grain. Lots of grain, but more interesting, they brought back money. All the money they took to buy the grain came back with them. Joseph put it back in their sacks as they left. And in verse 28, their hearts sank. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? The fear of God is in them. You can just imagine, even more, walking through their father's door to see their father Jacob. At this point, there's nine of them, not ten. In verse 36, their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Remember, they had to leave a brother to get out of Dodge. In his wisdom, God provided for Jacob and for his sons and for Joseph. God gave Jacob... And his son's food, it is true. He provided for them physically. But God is more concerned about our soul than our physical being. I contend this morning that in his wisdom, he is giving all the provision needed for these men. Which brings us to trip number two. Where did you go? Why did you go? Chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Who traveled on this trip? All the brothers, including Benjamin. That had to be so agonizing for Jacob. This was the favorite son, remember. He would not permit him to go. He knows that sleepless nights are coming. He's concerned whether he'll see his son again. It's worth noting how they packed for this trip as well. In verse 11, Then their father Israel, that's another name for Jacob, Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry them down to the man as a present. A little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take it back in your hand, the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. That's a lot of luggage. You know what the baggage fees are on that today? (laughs) But Jacob's doing this for a reason. He knows what he's doing. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16. a, A man's gift makes room for him. It brings him before great men. Get in the good graces of Egypt, get the grain, and get out. 
Do you think Joseph would permit that? The caravan arrives in Egypt a second time. This time we'd ask our friend, how were the accommodations? This time he'd answer five star. Chapter 43, verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. Verse 24, the house steward brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys fodder. Verse 34, Joseph took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. And while dining, the most unusual and coincidental of events occurred. The host, oddly, asks a lot about their father. Is he well? Is he still alive? When Benjamin enters the room, the host runs off. Joseph wept in his chamber. And strangely, if you looked down the seating chart, each man is arranged from oldest to youngest. How do they know? And what was about to happen would send these brothers reeling. They leave for home, all 11 brothers, sacks packed with food, and a silver cup planted by Joseph in a bag. It's not far off until the Egyptians come up to them and overtake them. And they return before Joseph, each man opening his sack. The house steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Joseph plays his role all too well. What is this deed you have done? The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is the one thing that could not happen. Any other thing could happen. Lose a different brother. Lose a few brothers. But do not lose Jacob's favorite. Judah begs. Judah's one of the brothers. And he's undergone some change in the years since the sale of Joseph. And he offers his own life in exchange for Benjamin. And in verse, or chapter 45, the brothers reunite, the eleven and Joseph. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were terrified of his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come closer to me. And they came closer. 
And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you see the wisdom of God? God provided each day for 20 years. He gave to each brother, and he gave to Joseph, and he gave to Jacob. He gave each of them what they needed when they needed it. He gave them the amount they needed. He gave them when they needed it. And I'm not talking to you about grain. God is infinitely wise in his provision. In your life and in my life. And his provision stretches far beyond what we ate for breakfast today. Now, to be clear, God's provision does meet our physical needs. This morning, God has gifted you food. You've had breakfast. You've had a fridge of foods to choose from if you were so inclined. God gave you water this morning to drink and to bathe. If you haven't, your neighbor knows it. God gave you clothing and shelter and fresh air. In his sovereign wisdom, the Lord provides for all our needs. But I contend that he cares more about your soul. And he's given you provision for your soul. God knew in this account what each person needed along the journey. At each mile marker of life, God gave them what they needed to make them into the people they became. He provides a sanctifying work in our lives. He gives us just what we need, much more beyond the physical. For Joseph, it was his sale to Egypt. It was his brother's betrayal. For Jacob, it was his loss. For Jacob, there was that agonizing injustice of of imprisonment and then the, the growing bellies of all of them, the growling bellies of all of them. God knew just what to give them. And in God's wise provision, at just the right time, this reunion happened. And in God's wise provision, at just the right time, each heart changed. And God cares this morning for your soul. And he gives provision for you. Because another one came, also beloved by his father. Someone else who received envy and anger from others. Someone who was sold for a price. Someone who gave his life as a payment. Someone who rose from the pit all the way up to the throne. And someone who turned evil into salvation. In God's wisdom, he gives you Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 calls Jesus the wisdom from God. And God provides you with a way to be reunited to him. The Bible teaches us that that we are broken, that we sin, that we sin against God. And this morning, God may be providing you out of his mercy and his grace and his love an abundance of physical provisions, many gifts. But if you do not this morning, come to Jesus turning from your sins and believing, then your spirit is in a famine. The wisest choice you and I will ever make is to turn from our sins and turn to Jesus Christ. And you can do that right now. You can believe where you are, believe that Jesus Christ loves you 
and that he died for you and that he rose again. You can be forgiven and made right with God. Well, this is the provision of God. The wisdom in God's provision goes far beyond our cupboards and our garages. It goes into the very depth of our need in our soul. I want you to see secondly in this account of Joseph, God's wisdom in his providence. When we speak of providence, we say that God sovereignly upholds all things. He's directing and cooperating them to work together to fulfill all of his predetermined purpose. In God's infinite wisdom, he knows how to bring about his divine purposes. Ephesians 1 verse 11 tells us God works all things after the counsel of his will. And that is, in fact, the testimony of Joseph. God providentially directs his people down to each individual. I want to pick up where we left off in Genesis 45. You might remember Joseph's brothers in this account. They're sweating buckets. If panic has an odor, the room stank. Here is this brother who they sold into slavery. And that was plan B after they decided not to kill him. And now he's second in power to Pharaoh. What is to become of these men? Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I want to draw your attention to Joseph's perspective on these events. How he's viewed what's happened to him. Verse 5, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. Now notice the role of man and the role of God in this verse. There's the role of the brothers. What did the brothers do? You sold me. There's the role of God. What did God do? God sent me. God is the divine superintendent over all of this. He's guiding the actions of his brothers. They're not robots, but they're acting in normal accordance with their nature. In God's wisdom, God is guiding them to their predetermined end. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says it this way, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You see, God had a purpose for the trials of Joseph. And without this sovereign, directing hand of God, without this hand of God in his life, there would have been no dream interpretation. There'd be no prison shared with these Pharaoh's staff members. There'd be no memory of him by the cupbearer. There would have been no appearance before Pharaoh. There'd be no sense made of his dream, no storing up in plenty, and certainly no preservation of life. And I want you to know this morning 
that just as God did with Joseph, God has a plan for every trial of your life. For everyone, the Christian never experiences pointless suffering. God superintends all things in your life to accomplish his plans. In verse 7, Joseph repeats the refrain, God sent me before you, this time to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. Here the purpose sharpens. The purpose becomes more clear. God's elect nation, beginning with Abraham, passing through Isaac, forming in Jacob, they would not perish. As we've skipped along through Genesis this summer, there have been plenty of opportunities for this nation to become undone, for them to basically just disintegrate. But God has kept them. He stayed faithful to his promises and to his covenant. And God has not let it happen, and God will not let it happen. God used Joseph to preserve a remnant, to keep them alive. You can read over in chapter 46, beginning at verse 8. I think it goes down to 27. It lists off 70 different people in the family of Jacob. God preserved them through Joseph. Others will die. There's famine in Egypt. There's famine back in Canaan. These will not. No one dies before their predetermined date. And God uses trials as well in our lives at times, to preserve us. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, hard times may be God's means of saving you and others from an even greater disaster. And David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Verse 8, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's the third time in four verses Joseph declares, God sent me. He's now speaking completely in terms of God. His brothers are are out of the equation. They're no longer in the discussion. Ultimately, ultimate responsibility is, is lying with God. That's not to say that his brothers aren't guilty, that they haven't sinned, but God transcends their sin, and he works that out, and he works it together to bring about his purposes. Joseph will send them home to retrieve their father. And the lens zooms out in Genesis. Not only does this providence of God direct individuals, but it also directs nations. God providentially directs nations. Jacob will move to Egypt. So Israel, chapter 46, verse 1, So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. In God's wisdom, he will use Egypt as an incubator to to grow his nation Israel. In fact, back in Genesis 15, he told Abraham that much. 
He told him he would do so. Verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. That would be fulfilled in Egypt. God is working through Joseph to preserve his people, to build a nation there. It's the infinite wisdom of God. Israel lived in the land of Egypt and Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful. It became very numerous. Now, I see some of you getting a little bit nervous. You're on the edges of your seats. What about the promised land? What about the promised family? Everybody's left of the promised land. The promised family's in Egypt. Calm down. They're going to come back. Jacob's nearing the end of his life. Jacob's calling Joseph to come near to him. Chapter 47, verse 29, when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph. And he said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Already there's this nod back toward the promised land, toward the land of Canaan, toward the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 49, Jacob's going to address each of his sons. He's going to bestow upon them blessings or curses. A few weeks ago, we discussed Judah. We covered one of those promises as an example. And then through each one of these sons would arise a tribe. And then there'd be 12 tribes, and they would comprise the nation Israel. The final verse of chapter 49, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. For the brothers, the panic meter surges again. Chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did for him? The account of Joseph now reaches its peak. Joseph speaks the wisdom of God. And he speaks a wisdom that was acquired through his years of trials and his years of growth and his years of learning. He's learned this by walking closely with the Lord through hard times. Chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people. Notice here that God did not author the evil. It is impossible for God to commit evil, even in the most wicked of designs, in the worst intentions, in the harshest trials. God's purposes are still accomplished, though those things happen. Because God is all wise. He's infinitely wise. He always gives us just what we need when we need it. 
He gives it to us physically and spiritually, these trials that you endure this very hour. God sovereignly holds all things. He's directing and cooperating them to bring about his predetermined plans. Now that is a theological statement. That's the kind of thing they say in seminaries. That's the kind of thing they research in basement libraries. But I'll tell you something else. That is a life-giving statement. It's that kind of statement that can bring you joy. That kind of statement can bring you peace. That kind of statement can make you friends. That kind of statement can help you sleep. That kind of statement can make you change. It'll change your life today. Because if you and I share this view of the providence of God, if we ascribe to the view that Joseph preached, we can live our lives without complaining and without grudges and without jealousy and without greed and without anger and without quarrels and without division. That's what Joseph did. Each of his brothers kept their head because of it. And to make that decision, you and I this morning, to choose to live our lives in a way that that, that embraces that view of God, to choose to to live in a way that, that, that looks like God is at work through our purposes and in our lives, that'll change how we live. To give you an example, let's say this morning you have some type of annoyance in your life. Maybe a coworker or a neighbor or a family member. Someone who's always making life hard for you. The sound of their voice raises your blood pressure. Let's say this morning, maybe your, your present life goal just, just isn't working out. Maybe it's delayed for some reason or it's disrupted. Maybe it's defeated altogether. Maybe there's some type of bitterness in your heart. You're angry at God. If we adopt a biblical view of the providence of God, our lives will change. God is working to fulfill his purposes. And he's working to fulfill his purposes in your lives. John Piper once said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. We see maybe three of them. And as we trust the unseen, and as we trust God in the unknowns, we will magnify his name. We're going to become the kind of people that we've explored through the book of Genesis this summer. People who suffer hard things, yes, it's true. But people whose lives magnify the attributes of our infinitely wise God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for life-changing faith that we would believe that you are at work in all circumstances, that we would be comforted by that, that it would change our lives, that it would settle our souls. Oh, Father, I pray for your people this morning that they would draw near to you Trusting you when we don't see the end. Trusting you when it hurts. I pray for us, Father, as a church, that you would bind us together, able to support one another and minister to one another in those times. Thank you for your infinite wisdom. Thank you for your divine providence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.